This is the Adopted Mom Podcast. Adoption may look different for each family, but we need solidarity from other crazy people who took this leap. And that is what we do here. We encourage, we build up, we share the wins and losses. We lean on each other and we get through this together. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, welcome to part two of our very hard, very important interview series on disrupted adoptions by family choice. In part one, we heard from Amy Butler and Rachel Kirksey. And now for part two, we're going to listen in on my interview with Randy Perkins. Randy is a mom of three boys, none of which is adopted, but that's not for lack of trying. You guys, Randy fought for over two years with multiple teen boys who did not get to remain in their home. Randy and her husband Lloyd have been through the ringer, and I hope their story touches you guys and gives some of you solidarity. As always, I will have to remind you guys to team up with me by joining my email list. You get a free sticker this month when you do. You also get a special note from me that I don't share anywhere else. Each week's episode delivered right to your inbox and extra links, tips, and info. I've got an amazing special surprise coming in December for Christmas that will only come out on the email list. So don't miss out. Go to theadoptivemompodcast.com slash email and sign up for your, sh- your free sticker now. Um, all right, y'all. Let's go chat with Randy Perkins. We are continuing our series episode on disrupted adoptions, and I'm super excited to introduce you guys to Randy Perkins. How's it going, Miss Randy? Good. How are you? You know, I'm hanging in there. This week is potty training week, and so I'm basically a basket case, but we're going to pull it together for the next few minutes. Great. (laughs) You've been, you've done this three times, so. Yeah. Are you a pro or have you forgotten it or blocked oh, it out? totally blocked it out. Yeah. yeah. That was a long time ago. You, not only have you done it three times, you've done it with three boys. Yes. I don't I don't even understand the biology or like to explain to them how to aim or <laughs> any of this. That doesn't get better. My teenagers still have a hard time with that. <laughs> don't tell me that. Well, I say that I, I also have a teenager who I'm just like, how did this happen? Yeah. yeah. And why can we not lift up the seat? I mean, really? Yeah. I don't, it's like they are not paying attention. I don't, whatever. Um, with little boys, it's fun because I just have to say the word penis a lot. Yes. <laughs> it's really fun. That also does it get better. <laughs> I'm sure you hear the word penis a lot. Too. A lot. Yeah. Oh, so funny. Well, funny. for this reason and more, I'm so excited to have you on the show. But can you take a second and introduce us to your family? Sure. I'm Randy Perkins, and I am married to Lloyd Perkins. We've been married for 19 years. Goodness. I have, yeah. Um, I have a 15-year-old son, Braxton, a 12-year-old Bryce, and a 10-year-old Brady. Was there any theme there? I, I don't, I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> it actually wasn't intentional. It just kind of happened that way. Seriously? And then, yeah. And then with the third one, we just kind of had to because yeah. the first two. You have to tell them what your social media names for them are. Oh, B1, B2, B3. Yeah, just keeping it simple. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, so, okay, you, I know you from mm-hmm. a lot of things, actually. We used to go to church together, and um, then you left us. I'm mostly kidding. <laughs> um, but then also, you became a call family, so then we had this other fun connection. Yes. So how did you guys decide to do that, and what was your process like there? Okay, well, I'm a teacher. Um, and in a town that we were living in before, there was a um, temporary shelter kind of place. And so the children that were in that shelter would come to our school. We were in a small town. 
And there were a couple boys there, brothers, that really connected with my oldest son. This was in elementary school for him. And um, for some reason, I guess because the shelter people knew us, they allowed these boys to come to our birthday party, which is not typical for that um, group home. And so they came to a birthday party. And after that, we just kind of all fell in love with them and just connected with them. And then they started asking if they could come live with us. <laughs> and so we were like, oh, my goodness. We, My husband and I always knew that we wanted to adopt in some way. We just kind of never really were like, that's the push we needed. And so we jumped on it and we went through the call training and um, everything. And then right as we were, you know, getting close to opening up, um, they pulled the boys out and we never saw them again. Wow. And so we're like, oh, okay, what does this mean? And, and we had some issues. We found out that our septic tank was, wasn't what we lived on the side of a mountain. It wasn't what it was supposed to be. And so they wouldn't open our home and until we fixed that. So it was kind of a mess. And in the middle of that, we moved. And so, um, it was just crazy. Then, um, a few years later, I don't know, um, we decided that it was just time and God was calling us. And so we particularly wanted to foster um, and adopt potentially uh, teenagers because we knew that that was very needed. Mm -hmm. And so um, that we began the process again because it had been more than two years. So we've actually are professionals. We've been through the call training twice. <laughs> you're really trained. I'm really trained. <laughs> So, Plus, you're already a mandated reporter as a teacher. I mean, so right. Really like triple train. Yes. So I'm really good at this. Not, no, not at all. <laughs> <We'll> find out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's kind of how it started. And, um, yeah, that's it. Well, and so obviously this episode is on disrupted adoptions, and you have two of those. Mm -hmm. uh, one was voluntary and one was not. Um. And so I want to get into all this and I'm really, I'm always touched to hear your story because I think that even though you might not think so, you've always been so brave and so open about sharing it. And, um, and I think that it really encourages other people because you have not given up your faith and you've not, um, I don't know, you've not let it break you to the fact that you're still open to doing this again in the future, maybe. And I think yeah. that that's really cool. So, um, I know that you're not going to use any names, which is mm -hmm. fine. And so walk us through how this all started. Okay. So, you know, when you sign up to, to foster, um, they, you kind of have a, a checklist per se of, of children that you would like to accept in your home and children that you wouldn't. So certain ages, um, genders, that kind of thing. Um, and we kind of were leaning towards teenage boys. I mean, that's kind of where we went, but we were kind of like, uh, you know, we would consider something else. Well, they don't really care when they call you. It doesn't really matter what's on your list. Um, so our first <laughs> placement was a 14-month-old and a four-year-old um, brothers. And so that was like, whoa, this is crazy. Um, and that was kind of a cool thing because we um, knew it was really hard, but we knew early on that they were potentially going to be able to be adopted. But I also knew early on that they were not for me. And I don't know how I knew that other than God. Um, and we actually were able to, this is another story for you, but we were able to walk through um, Amy Butler introducing us to some parents that were 
um, finishing up their call training and we were able to transition our children, they were ours, to Chelsea and Shane Shower. And Which- so... Those of it's so Chelsea's actually been on the podcast. You just don't know it because I didn't Sorry. use her name. No, but it's fine. It's just funny how all of these people you're talking about have been on the podcast before. Yes. And so we have been able to just continue to be a part of those boys' lives and and love on them and them love on us. So that was really cool. In the middle of that, um, when God told us those boys were not ours, um, we felt heavily led again to adopt. Um, teenage boys. So I got a picture from one of my friends who was a call family and said, you need this boy. <laughs> and so we're like, okay. Um, and so the day that we transitioned the little boys out of our home, uh, we transitioned a teenage boy into our home. Um, I have since learned that is a really bad idea for everyone involved, um, particularly my children. So um, he was with us with the intent of adoption. His rights had been terminated for a long time. He'd been in the system for over 10 years. Um, And he was with us probably from November to, I don't know, I'd say February of March, February or March. And um, it was hard. It was just really, I don't know how else to say it. When he came to us, He had been in the system so long and in so many group homes that what we learned was instead of trying to get to the bottom of the issue psychologically, they would just continue to put them on different medications. Mm. So when this 15-year-old boy came into our house, he literally could not hardly stand up um, because he was so overdosed and he would sit on our couch and fall asleep. He couldn't have a normal conversation with you um, because he just was not coherent enough. And it was all prescribed medication, mm. so much so that when we needed to have it refilled, um, the, the doctor that we knew told us, they're not going to believe you. You need to take the pills and like the actual prescriptions bottles into the pharmacy because they're not going to believe you that this is how much medication he takes. Wow. Yeah. So that's kind of how we started, um, which was rough in itself. And we t- got him into a doctor, psychiatrist and all of that, counselor. And um, the doctor decided to take him off his medications cold turkey, where the psychiatrist did, which was also another issue that we discovered was a huge problem when you have a child that's been on them for years and years and years. My husband checked into it, and, and he had been on some of these medications at seven that would be prescribed for an adult. So um, anyway, so that kind of set us up. We... I don't know what happened, but somewhere around February or March, um, he would have these anger outbursts and he would run away. And um, the police, we found out, will only bring them back to your house, but they will not bring them into your home. They can't force them. And so um, we discovered a lot of things from the police about all this along the way, but (laughs) we ran away one night. We couldn't get him to come home. We called his caseworker, and she came and got him. Well, she came and talked to him first. And then all of a sudden, she's like, we're going to pack his bag, and we're going to leave. And we were just floored. I mean, we just had no idea what was going on or 
what had happened. We just knew he was angry and nothing had really caused it or provoked it. He would just have these outbursts and we were willing to work, but it just wasn't like, it wasn't even an option for us. Yeah. So they took him away. Um, and then we decided he was from, um, North Little Rock or that area, Pine Bluff. I'm not really sure. And, um, we were still in contact with the caseworkers and they were very upset about his caseworkers down there and they were adoption specialists. They were upset that all that had happened and they didn't know why he had left and all this stuff. So anyway, we felt like a lot of his outbursts and issues that he was struggling with uh, mentally were because he had a brother. Mm. And um, I just thought, you know, if it were my boys and they had been separated, they would do anything to be back together. And I think one of the reasons he wanted to come up to Northwest Arkansas was because his brother was in a placement in Northwest Arkansas. So um, we stayed in touch with them or with him and really his brother too. And his placement disrupted too. And then so that summer, we took both of the boys into our home, both Mm. of the teenage boys. So... um, with the idea that we would adopt both of them um, and that they wanted to be adopted when it was a year older than the original one that we had had. And then um, after about two weeks of them being there, the oldest one told me that he did not want to be adopted. He just came because he wanted to be in a home and be with his brother because pretty much the options are group homes. Um, Right. Especially for teenage boys. Yeah. For teenage boys. So, um, we stayed, they stayed with us until, I don't, I don't remember, sometime around Christmas. Um, the first boy uh, was really struggling still. Uh, we were trying to get medications worked out. They still wouldn't really, we couldn't get much help in, with that. I was beginning to get very uncomfortable with him around my youngest child at the time. Um, I would wake up really afraid that they were alone together. Mm. I had never seen anything happen other than it was just a feeling that I had. Yeah. Your mom heart was screaming. Yes, it was screaming. And when you know that that's the first thing you think of when you wake up, like there's something not right. Oh yeah. So we just kind of trudged along. I was very wary, but also, um, very concerned about these boys. One of the things that bothered me when we were going through this is people were very concerned about my own children. And they would say things to me like, well, you need to take care of your children. And and that bothered me because I thought, well, who's taking care of these teenagers? Mm-hmm. Like, why are they not the same as mine? Um, and if we provided a home for them, then they would be mine. Like, that was really disconnect for me. I couldn't figure it out. Right. So... In the process of this, it was hard for me to, like, focus on my boys, but then I don't know if that makes sense. Um, I felt guilty about feeling this way about this boy. Right. Because I knew that he needed to be protected, but also my children needed to be protected. And so it was weird because he was mine, not officially yet, but I felt that way. But there was still this gap in between us, I guess. So that just continued. And his anger outbursts did not get any better. In fact, they got worse. 
um, to the point where they were frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, he would scream. He would become irate. He wouldn't be able to have um, conversations with us like in his anger that his words did not even make sense. Yeah. Um, he would run away more. And then, um, you know, one night, you know, the police officer was sitting out on the lawn with him and he was a new cop and had no idea what was going on. (laughs) Thought he was being helpful. Not helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so there came a point, the final night was he had another crazy, I I can't even put it into words other than we were terrified. Like a psychotic break. It was a psychotic break. That's a good word for it. So much so that, um, we slept with all of our children and my husband and I locked in our room Mm -hmm. because we called, um, the caseworker. We called the adoption specialist. We called the on-call worker. We called everyone to come and help us and no one would come. Um, no one. In fact, uh, the caseworker was busy with someone else in, a, in the hospital or something, and so another foster child. And so they wouldn't come. The adoption specialist wouldn't answer our phone calls. The on-call, I guess that was the person that was dealing with another issue. Mm-hmm. And so we were just left. And they were like, well, the best we can do is tell you to you know, talk to Vantage Point or something like that. And um, what we ended up taking him the next morning after we survived the night to vantage point and basically unless they say they're going to harm themselves or harm someone else they won't accept them Mm. well the problem is when you have a teenage boy who is intelligent and has been in the system for as long as he has he knows exactly what to say and he didn't want to go um and so you know he's he he knew what to say and what not to say and so he ended up coming back home with us but they would still would not come get him and what they kept telling us was, um, it, this was right around the 1st of January. And so it was like a holiday weekend, basically. And they did not want to take the time to come pick him up and take him back to Little Rock. And so they kept telling us that it was 10 business days before they could do anything. Wow. And we're going, no, you don't understand. Like, we are terrified at this point. Um, and no, they wouldn't do anything. And there was one point where... Um, there were four people, and this is again not Northwest Arkansas, but there were four people on the phone with us, on speakerphone, and and they were like the adoption specialist, a caseworker, some supervisors, and they were literally yelling at my husband and I on the phone, um, and telling us that they knew that we shouldn't have taken him, and um, they didn't know why we'd taken him off all his medicine, like we had the power to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And basically telling us it was our fault, um, which we already felt. We didn't need anybody to tell us, but we also knew that it wasn't our fault. And we had this child that was not safe and he needed to leave our home right then. So eventually what happened was we just had connected with the right people and we got some people to call lawyers and lawyers to handle the situation. And um, they forced them to come and pick them, pick him up. I bet that was a really pleasant exchange. Oh, well, what turned out to be funny is they suddenly decided that, um, he was not safe to ride in a car by himself with a woman. (laughs) And so 
<laughs> that area could not send a caseworker to come get him because all they had was women. So they had to get one of Northwest Arkansas caseworkers, a man, to take him down to meet them because they weren't able to. And this, but you're safe to sleep in the house with him. Yes. Yeah. The other thing that we discovered, um, you know, that gut feeling that I had, one of the things we did almost right before we left was getting them into counseling at this point was like a nightmare. Um just because you have to jump through all the hoops. Right. And so we had finally gotten him and his brother into a counseling session. And in the first session, I was sitting in there and they asked him if he'd ever been in like a group home or a therapy home. Or, and he's like, yes. And he says, well, tell me the name of it. The, and he told him the name of one. And look on the on the counselor's face. I caught. I mean, it was brief, but I caught. And he's like, well, tell me a little bit more about that. And I thought, mm, something's up. Yeah. So then he had me leave the room, and then they continued their conversation. So when the boy came to the car, I was like, what was that about? Tell me about it. And he's like, well, he was asking about my time in this certain home. I was like, oh, well, when I looked it up, it was a home particularly for um, teenagers or, I guess, children, I don't know, who had been perpetrators in sexual abuse cases. Not perpetrated on, but actually perpetrated. And we had asked a million times, a million times. Um, we'd asked several different people. We'd read his file. None of that was in there. I specifically asked because I had boys in my home that were going to be younger than right. him. Um, and nothing was disclosed to me. So when we were on the phone with that, those, that group of people that were yelling at us, we told them that this was a concern of ours, that this had been, you know, brought to our attention just recently. And we were even more concerned that we had already been. They argued with us. They told us he had never been in that home. And the caseworker and the adoption specialist that he had from the other county, he had had since he was a little boy. Yeah. So they knew exactly where he had been. And so um, they literally were like, no, that never happened. <laughs> and the boy is like, listening on the phone as we're walking around the house trying to get this settled. He is in a much better mental state at this point, but still not safe because you don't know when he could go off. Right, right. And with this information, also not safe. And so he's sitting on the couch and he's hearing us talk and he goes, yes, I have been. <laughs> and they're like, what? And we like held up the phone. And, and this boy got on the phone and said, yes, I went to that place. Remember? And they like shut it down. Ooh. Yeah. So he left, um, I think, that afternoon um, because pretty much my husband told him if he d they didn't come, he was going to have the police come get him or something. Right. So that was that whole story. And so backing it up just a little bit, yeah. you, meanwhile, um, mm -hmm. his brother's still there. Still in our and home. And from what I remember, he was just kind of like, Turn the blinders on, right? Mm -hmm. like you just kind of like, la, 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 this isn't happening. I mean, he even told the boy the, the night, especially the night that he was so, so crazy. I, I mean, I don't mean to be rude, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, he, his, he was even telling him like, dude, you got to stop. Like, you have to stop. Like, chill out. Calm down. And, and it didn't help. But other than that, yeah, he pretty much was whatever. So he had already told you that... Um, he didn't want to be adopted, mm -hmm. but he remained in your home yeah. 
for another little while and things were going decently. I mean, better than comparatively, right. Than his brother. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened there? So he was with us from January until March. Um, things were difficult. He was not, um, not having the psychotic outburst like his brother did, but he was very, um, I would say manipulative. Mm -hmm. And so he would go to school and tell the coaches their stories about us. And, um, he just had a lot of different places that he kind of liked to stir the pot, I guess I would say. Um, and what we discovered in knowing his, some of his former placements and even from his adoption specialist, that he was good for about six months in a place. And then he would disrupt on his own. Mm. Um, and that's what we saw. Yeah. Um, and so after about that mark, I, my feeling was he started to get too close. And so when you've been in the system, as long as you have, that's very difficult and you have a lot of trust issues. And so when he started to feel you know, any connection with us, then, you know, the, the walls went up and the lies came out and the, it, it just was a really difficult time. So, um, when he actually disrupted, we were, um, he, he went to the school, the, both the boys went to the school that I teach at and, um, he, which made it quite difficult, but he, had told us, I think, that he wanted to leave. I don't know, and I don't remember exactly, but I do know that he went to the school. The school let him use the phone. He called his caseworker and said, um, I want to leave. And they came and got him the next day. And we found out because the, they called us and told us that that's what had happened. We had no idea that he was asking to go home he didn't really have any real reasons to go home. I mean, n not go home, but go back to where he came from. Right. Um, it was really strange and, and hard to deal with. Um, you know, you feel like a failure in the first sense and with the first boy, the first brother, um, and that you couldn't help him enough. And then in the second sense, the failure of you're not wanted. I mean, we gave them everything and it wasn't, it wasn't good enough, I guess. Um, or it was too good. Maybe. But then you start to look at yourself and like, okay, what did I do wrong? What did I say wrong? What should I have done differently? And there's this pressure of you failed. I mean, you just, you just didn't, you couldn't do it. And then, um, do you continue on? What do you do now? I mean, the heartbreak of all of that um, was really tragic. It was really tragic, and it's still hard because there's you have this great desire in you to answer that call of being an adoptive parent or foster parent or whatever, but yet your heart can't literally do it anymore. Um, yeah. So that's... That's kind of where we've been. <laughs> um, that's heavy. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah. I just, I know where I would be and I would be so incredibly bitter, mm. I think. And, um, and just very burnt out. I feel like burnout is a, is an understatement. So it amazes me that you still have this heart for, for those in need in this way. And 
I can't, I mean, I, I know that this is such a hard question, but where, why? Why do I still have the need? Yeah. Or the, the desire? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, it's just something that, that I feel like God placed on my heart years ago. And um, it's just never been answered. That question has never been answered. Like, did I, did we screw up what you gave us? I mean, for a while after the first boy left, he would call even the summer. So his brother left in March and even that next summer, he would call me. And um, at that point, he was in juvenile detention. And um, he would ask me to contact his lawyer. He would ask me, I, I don't know, all kinds of questions. Sometimes he would call and let other people talk to me. Sometimes he would call and laugh on the phone and hang up. Mm. Um, I think he just wanted a connection with someone. And so, you know, you remember the good times and you think, oh, maybe I could have, maybe we could have made this work. <laughs> maybe it would have been good, you know. But I sat down afterwards because I was really struggling with it, really, really struggling with it. With Amy Butler, sat down with Amy Butler. And Amy um, kind of related it in a very real way for me in terms of a war. Yeah. And my family is military. So this made total sense to me and that we don't keep the same um, people, soldiers fighting on the front lines of the battlefield. And um, there comes a point where if those soldiers are wounded, that you put them in triage and you take care of them until they are healthy enough to go back on the battlefield. And I, I mean, that analogy just resonated with me because my family was broken by this point. And we had had um, 15 different foster placements. Two of those were twice, um, ranging from 14 months to 17 We'd had kids come in that, um, you know, they tested, boys that they tested for drugs right in my living room um, in front of my kids. We had um, meth addicts and all kinds of crazy stuff. And so the trauma that that puts your own children through, um, I had a different understanding of taking care of my own children and realizing that they needed to be in triage as much as I did. And my mm -hmm. husband did too. Um, so... It was just a matter of we needed to step back and we needed to get healthy. And all of my kids got in counseling. Um, only one was in before, but we all got in counseling and have just been working our way through. And I don't, I still don't know that we're there yet, but I hope that one day we will be. And in the process and the time being, we just try to love and support foster families and adoptive families that we know. Wow. Um, and I think, I mean, that's that resilience that I was talking about at the beginning of this episode or the beginning of this um, chat. It just, it amazes me because I think that where so many people would have given up or would have said, this is some kind of sign that this is not mm -hmm. for us or something like that. I think that you guys have been able to see such a healthy view on it, which is that, I mean, and I love that you brought that up because I think that that's one of Amy's favorite analogies to give out. Yeah. I'm very familiar with it as well. Um, and it's so true and yeah. it's so grace giving. And I know that, um, we've talked about the mama heart thing a couple times so far, but I think that even though 
outwardly you might have been you might have been pushing and clawing your way to this finish line, which is adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point in your heart, you knew that this was just not going to happen. Yeah, talk to me about that. I honestly don't know that I that I was there until they were out of my home. Mm. Um, I don't know why. I guess I'm, I am a very optimistic person. And so <laughs> <laughs> sometimes do a fault, I think my husband would say. But I don't think it really sank in that that, that that wasn't going to happen until they were gone. As with the little ones before, God clearly spoke to me. I knew it. And I was able to pray through that and pray for, I tell them all the time, I prayed for someone that would love God more than I do and love those, these kids more than I could, which is a huge amount because I love Jesus so much. But <laughs> I mean, he gave me that um, above and beyond. And with these boys, there wasn't that. There wasn't closure. There wasn't there wasn't anything. Um, in fact, one day the oldest boy showed up on our doorstep like then the summer. I mean, he left in March and he showed up on our doorstep in the summer looking for his bike that he'd left there. And we were like, What? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you here? <laughs> so I don't I don't know. That was kind of a random answer, but um yeah. But I think God, I mean, we clearly God works in different ways. I don't want to say mysterious ways because that's super cliche. But I think it's just, it always amazes me where I'm like, oh, I guess that was you, God. I didn't think you would speak like that or whatever. And I I just, I think that that's really cool. And it's interesting to hear you say that you haven't gotten closure because I think that that's what we want out of stories, right? We want Mm -hmm. everything to be tied up in a neat bow. Yeah. Um, And that hasn't been your reality. No. And so you're still you're still waiting, yeah. With with faith, which is amazing. That's why you're like, I don't know, some kind of warrior of some sort. No, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> oh man, girl. So okay, knowing all this, having having talked through this again, um, what would you say to that that mama that's listening that is maybe in a situation where she feels like people are going to look down on her? Mm. She feels like she's failing. She feels like the shame is going to eat her whole, mm-hmm. but she knows in her mama heart that this is not right. What would you say? I would say to listen to your mama heart. Um, I feel, I still feel that guilt, that regret, that pain, you know, there's, it comes not intentionally at all. I think we put it on ourselves from the foster adoptive group that you're so heavily involved in. And then you feel like they're going to judge you or look down on you because you couldn't stick it out, Mm. that you couldn't help these kids the way that they needed to be helped. And honestly, I wanted to save them. I watched way too many dangerous minds and, you know, all those crazy (laughs) movies back in the nineties. Like I had that With enough love. (laughs) I can do it. We can save them and they'll be wonderful. And, you know, NFL football players, but. But, you know, there, there is that guilt from that, that you couldn't cut it. And then there's the guilt of here I am still trying to tell, you know, my Facebook friends or, you know, the people that know me well, or those that don't, that I love foster children and I love adopted children and you need to do this. You know, I share all the Project Zero videos and I still think 
do people think I'm a phony? You know, I don't think that exact thing, but something like that, because I think, how can I share these videos about how other people need to adopt and foster, but yet I'm not adopting or fostering. Um, But at the same time, I have learned the understanding of God gave me my children, my personal children, and you may not have your own children, but God gave you and your husband or you and the community that surrounds you. I don't know how to say this. You do have to take care of them. You, it is your job um, to take care of them first and to be healthy first so that you can give that love and grace and support and health to these broken kids that are coming into your home. And if you can't do that, then you need to go into triage and get healthy so that you can come back later and be on the front lines again. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, that's that's some <laughs> truth bomb right there. I think, I mean, it, I love that you just said all of that because that's exactly the mission of the podcast. You know, when I mm. started this, it was because I felt like so many eyes are on adoption, adoption, connection to the child, saving the child, whatever mm-hmm. else. And there are so few eyes on adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. And you hit the nail on the head. If we're not healthy, then we're not helping anyone. Mm-hmm. We're not saving anyone. Um, and that's why I I like to say that we're only the main character of our own story. Mm-hmm. And I think that that just from our conversations before, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but yeah. I know that that's something that you've discovered, just that you, your job was never to save them. Right. Your job was to be a part of their lives for a time, and you did that. So, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. But at times, it can feel like we failed because we weren't the end game for them. Yes. A social worker said to me um, um, when I was struggling with whether or not those first littles we're going to be um, in our home or not. She said to me, um, the right now is just as important. Um, And so in in some kind of wise words from her, but that's what I got from it, that them being with us in the right now was just as important as their end game. Because if we hadn't been there in, in that time, those boys would not have most likely the same, um, impact or result, I guess would be the word of where they are now. Yeah. Um, and we wouldn't be able to have been and continue to be a part of their journey and their stories. Um, and so the same thing kind of goes for our boys that disrupted is that, um, you know, we were, we did provide love. We did provide support. Um, we gave them all that we could during that time. And it was important that they know that and feel that and see that the youngest one had never had that before. And so, um, yeah. Ah, so good. So good. I'm so incredibly thankful that you shared your story. I know that it can be a hard story to tell. Um, but I'm constantly admiring your bravery and just your, your resolve to stand up for yourself, honestly. I mean, stand up for yourself and your family Mm -hmm. and the health of that. And I love the healing journey that you've been on to be able to do that. And I think it's going to be so encouraging to everyone listening. So thank you again. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I know this stuff is hard and I hope you found encouragement here. Remember, you are enough and you're doing a great job. 
God wants to be at the center of this journey, and He is big enough to redeem all of our mistakes. Don't forget to check out show notes and other resources at theadoptivemompodcast.com. Thanks again for listening.